This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, a report from Hong Kong. Historian Jeff Wasserstrom will talk about the months of demonstrations there and what they mean for the future. Also, Tom Lutz, founding editor of the L.A. Review of Books, has a novel out. It's called Born Slippy. James Elroy calls it a finely wrought story of friendship, ingenuity, and blithe evil. But first, a trial in the Senate. Trump Watch starts right now. For today's political update, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, before we talk about the impeachment trial in the Senate, I think we have to talk about Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. It's less than three weeks before the Iowa primary, and the news media are thrilled they can run headlines about a feud, a fight, a battle between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie. Of course, around here at KPFK, people are very agitated and upset about this. Uh, what is your perspective? Are you taking sides? No. Uh, I like them both, and uh, I am reminded of uh, a very similar uh, set of events that occurred uh, the last time you had two Democratic presidential candidates really stake out a distinct left position on the most important uh, question facing the country, which was 1968, uh, when both Gene McCarthy and Bobby Kennedy uh, were running for president against Lyndon Johnson and against the Vietnam War. Now, I was... Uh, 18 years old, and L.A. high schools in those days had mid-year graduation, so I graduated at the end of January 1968, and since I wasn't starting college until September, I uh, went to work for uh, Gene McCarthy at age 18, and we hated Bobby Kennedy, and Bobby Kennedy's people hated us. Uh, we found all kinds of flaws in, in Bobby Kennedy, and there were flaws there, and they found all kinds of flaws in Gene McCarthy, and there were flaws there, and McCarthy and Kennedy actually couldn't stand each other and had a much greater animus between them than anything uh, between Bernie and Elizabeth today. You know, that said, it's 52 years later, and what we remember is both of them campaigned against Lyndon Johnson in the Vietnam War, I mean, yes. in terms of what we think of their campaigns. Yeah, there were differences. Uh, uh, Kennedy was sort of a beer track candidate, as the saying goes, remarkably able to win the votes of workers who were white and black and Latino. Uh, Gene McCarthy was more the candidate of liberal professionals and college students, of whom I was almost one. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and the animosity was really great, and we kind of on both sides overlooked that both of them had something in common that no one else around then had in common, running for president against the Vietnam War. Uh, and uh, I'm seeing that play out again today uh, with uh, Bernie and Elizabeth, uh, who history will remember 50 years from now as uh, being uh, as different from what the Democratic consensus on the economy has been for the last 40 years um, as, uh, you know, as Roosevelt was from Hoover. Uh, mm. Both of them 
have fundamental critiques, which are largely similar of the American economy and of what capitalism has become here. Both of them every day uh, put forth relatively similar solutions as to how to create a more democratic and egalitarian economy. And it's very easy to be swept up uh, in the passion of the moment as to <coughs> what Bernie did or didn't say, whether uh, Warren is sort of positioning positioned him uh, for an attack, whether he's now, you know, being the uh, sort of stubborn old guy that uh, some of his uh, opponents on the left have long thought, and and uh, whether uh, she isn't, a, you know, a true enough lefty as as some of Bernie supporters think. But you know, come on, I mean, each of them marks. I think a, a really definitive break uh with uh the democratic democrats forty decades complacency with uh, the rise of financialized capitalism and the huge levels of inequality that accompany that. Both of them will be remembered for that uh and if one or the other makes it to the White House uh I don't really care under whose <laughs> banner these these battles are fought. But these are the battles that need to be fought, that the two of them are fighting now, and that no one else in the Democratic field is fighting. So that's my two cents on that. Well, thank you very much. Um, they I mean, do... I'm, not, I'm not denying there are differences between the yeah, two, of course. Yeah, there are. Yeah, they're, they're... And, that, and that when they're seeking the same position, this stuff is going to happen. It yes. always does. Yes. But the... I think you can miss the big picture. Yes. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're just... You need to step back and and see that both of them are well to the left of you know any major democratic candidate in like forever. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I wonder what you think of uh, Warren's uh, argument. Uh, lately, has been that she can be the unity candidate of the Democrats. Uh, that the Democrats have a, a big enough base. Uh, to defeat Trump, and the task is to bring everybody together, and she's the best person to do that. Polls, this is Michelle Goldberg presented this case in her New York Times uh, op-ed column. Uh, polls often show her with the highest favorability ratings among all Democrats, even if she's not the first choice of many Democrats. And uh, there was a very interesting Economist sur YouGov survey that asked Democratic primary voters uh, which the victory by which candidates would disappoint them, and Warren was the last. So her argument is she can bring together the different segments of the party, uh, old and new, and be the unity candidate. Bernie, of course, has a very different electoral strategy, which is that he needs to, that we need to expand the base of the Democratic Party. We need to bring in a whole bunch of new young people, uh, single women who haven't voted in the past, people of color, to transform the party—a revolution, he calls it—and that uh, this is the best way to crush Trump. I wonder. These are different approaches. I wonder what you think. Well, they're both partly right. Uh, I think the strongest argument for Warren being the unity candidate is that she is always led uh when when democrats are asked who's your second choice yeah uh and 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 i think that that speaks to her ability to be a unity candidate bernie i think is particularly strong in some segments of the electorate not including the ones you named 
uh, where, where given the contours of the Electoral College, it may matter. He does better than she does, and quite possibly than all the other Democrats do, um, with a set of white working class voters who uh, uh, have had it with the establishment, and he has the bona fides, certainly, <clears throat> of the longest life spent outside the establishment, uh, the best record on trade as far as uh, white working class voters in Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, and uh, Ohio, for that matter, uh, would would uh, would testify. So you know, I mean, I think I think one of the problems facing Democratic voters right now is there are separate analyses as to why a particular candidate may be the strongest one against Trump. And many of those analyses carry weight, even though they are distinct, if not entirely contradictory. And so, uh, you know, uh, look, I don't doubt that Warren would also, uh, you know, seek to mobilize uh, more of the Democratic base, more groups in the Democratic base than has been done before. Her, she might say, well, you know, I can get the best turnout among single women. Maybe yeah. she can. Yeah. Uh, Bernie says, well, I can get the best turnout among the young. He probably can. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, that, 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 that's the dilemma when, when you base your vote this time around on who you think will be the strongest candidate. It, it needs to be pointed out that in polls and in swing states and places like that, uh, all the Democratic candidates do roughly the same. Bernie may be a little better in the Rust Belt. Uh, Warren a little better in other places, uh, Biden a little better in other places. So, you know, <coughs> excuse me, all of this may change after the first caucuses and primaries. But for now, I think uh, it's very hard to uh, make an assessment, no matter who you're for, say, philosophically or personally, it's very hard to make an assessment along, uh, along electability lines. Well, as you say, uh Especially if we look at the early states, uh, Iowa in particular, a lot of Democrats are still undecided, even though the caucuses are less than three weeks away. Forty percent say they still haven't made up their minds. Uh, it's sort of a four-way tie, more or less, between Bernie, Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and Mayor Pete. They all have substantial followings. Some pundits say this kind of uncertainty and division is a bad thing for a party that needs unity to beat Trump, what do you think? Well, it, look, I mean, it's it's also a completely understandable reaction to uh, who the field is. Uh, you know, it, it, it's possible that um, uh, this race is going to go on for some time uh, because uh, each candidate has a distinct base and because, <coughs> excuse me, because each candidate uh, has a claim, however uh, uh, sound it may be, to uh, superior electability. Um, now, here, here's the thing, though. If uh, Bernie and Elizabeth stay in the race and, you know, each, they each come in with 20 to 30 percent of the delegates, uh, if they don't get together somehow on the first ballot uh, to produce one candidate who has a majority, 
Then it goes to the second ballot, and the 700-some-odd superdelegates, elected officials and Democratic National Committee members, who are uh, forbidden under the new party rules from voting on the first ballot, then they vote on the second ballot and could come in for, uh, for Joe Biden or someone like that. And so if progressives want to win this, there may have to be a deal cut between Bernie and Elizabeth um, going into the convention. That's a possibility. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect. Uh, we need to talk about Trump on trial in the Senate. The trial started oh, yeah. today. This is a historic moment for uh, all of us. Uh, the Next week will be uh, the, the debate and, and the evidence. What, what should Democrats aim for since conviction seems to be out of the question? Well, what what Democrats should at least aim for is getting testimony from uh, John Bolton and a few other folks uh, who, uh, by all appearances, have a hell of a lot to say. Uh, I might add that today the General Accountability Office, uh, uh, which is the research wing employed by Congress, came out with a report saying that in withholding funds from Ukraine, Trump was actually breaking the law, if, if, just in case anyone in Congress cares what their research arm uh, has, uh, has concluded. Um, so I think the Democrats need, as best they can, to make the case, and they can obviously make the case better with further witnesses. Uh, it, 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 you know, they don't, they've decided not to, as it were, expand the bill of indictments uh, beyond uh, what's there now, but daily more evidence comes out about uh, uh, tr- the Trump people, Giuliani in particular, and his circle um, uh, efforts to manipulate Ukraine so that it becomes, as it were, a wing of the Trump campaign. Um, and and so that that that's the background. I think I think the most they can get out of it is just to make that case as uh, as best they can, and of course they can make it better with actual witnesses. Trump is uh, clearly becoming more and more obsessed and wild about the uh, impeachment proceeding. He seems to be especially uh, possessed by Nancy Pelosi. The latest sign was his tweeting, I think it was on Monday, of a doctored image showing uh, Nancy Pelosi in a hijab along with Chuck Schumer in a turban. And that's even before the trial has begun. He seems to be getting closer to blowing a gasket every day. And he's, <clears throat> if I were the Republican managers, I would be worried about what their uh, defendant is going to be doing for the next two weeks. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, when the uh, uh, witnesses were appearing before the House Intelligence Committee, uh, he, you know, actually more or less threatened one of the witnesses in, in real time while she was testifying. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, I, I think if I were a senatorial Republican, God forbid, uh, if I were a Republican <laughs> in the Senate, the, the less Trump, you know, uh, puts his finger on the scale uh, or puts his finger on his uh, on his iPhone tweeting, uh, you know, in real time about uh, the trial in the Senate, the less he does that, the better from the point of view, I think, of Republicans. I mean, it's they're they're a little aware that they're on uh, somewhat shaky ground to begin with, and the ground gets only shakier if, uh, you know, Trump uh, uh, feels obliged, as he probably will, 
to comment on on every uh, every five minutes during uh, during the Senate trial. And meanwhile, four Republican senators are joining Democrats in voting to limit his war powers. That seems big. Yes, there seem to be four Republicans willing to do that, and and that would give the Democrats. Uh, the votes they need to get that passed initially, though obviously not, you know, they need the same two-thirds they need to uh, convict in a Senate trial. <coughs> Excuse me, they, need, they would need the same two-thirds uh, to override a Trump veto, which they're not going to do. But, you know, it, it, uh, it reflects uh, the public's uh, weariness, to put it mildly, about being in in some kind of war footing in Iraq and Afghanistan and the, the Syria and Lord knows where else uh, since, since 2001, and uh, uh, even Republicans uh, have to pay some heed to that, particularly since, if you'll recall, <coughs> Trump ran on a uh, a pledge to get us out of the Middle East, uh, and, you know, he's currently sending more troops there uh, uh, since he apparently has not exposed enough U.S. troops uh, to retaliation there after the uh, Soleimani assassination. Trump has had one victory recently, and that is uh, getting Democratic support uh, in Congress for the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade deal. It got the support of the AFL-CIO. It split the Democratic presidential uh, candidates. Trump can argue he is delivering for American workers, and the AFL-CIO agrees with him. Uh, how bad is this for, for us? Well, I mean, it is, it, it is uh, uh, one of the few legitimate uh, things that Trump can claim to have done that uh, doesn't screw uh, the uh, working class uh, voters who voted for Trump the last time around. The reason it's, you know, the AFL-CIO supported it was there was a lot of uh, amendments uh, put in to strengthen worker rights uh, and, and therefore worker organization in Mexico, so Mexico wouldn't quite so undercut uh, American labor standards and therefore be even more attractive to offshoring American manufacturers, uh, for which people like Ohio, Democratic Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown should get a lot of credit. I mean, but is it good enough? Uh, no way. No way. And and I might add that the uh, uh, China deal that, that they're reaching right now uh, does even less for American workers. But, you know, it, 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 on this one issue, it's certainly half a feather in his cap. Labor was um, somewhat manipulated, I think, by Trump on this. Uh, the machinists were the one major manufacturing union that vociferously opposed it. The steelworkers, another major manufacturing union, said it would uh, withhold judgment and, 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 you know, did for some time. Um, so we shall see. But, you know, I mean, to the extent that sides aren't already chosen and bases aren't already mobilized in swing states in the Midwest, uh, I think it helps Trump a little. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org, where he has a new piece up, Bernie and Elizabeth Matters More Than Bernie Versus Elizabeth. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch. Next up, Hong Kong on the Brink.
That's in a minute. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, Tom Lutz talks about Born Slippy. Stephen Cha, Steph Cha, calls it a whip-smart whirlwind novel of noir and adventure, humor and horror, cynicism and romance. But first... Hong Kong on the brink. For that, we turn to Jeff Wasserstrom. He's Chancellor's Professor of History at UC Irvine, where he's a colleague and friend. He's the author of five previous books, including China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Needs to Know. He's written for the New York Times, the Times Literary Supplement, The Atlantic, and The Nation. And his new book is titled Vigil, Hong Kong on the Brink. Jeff Wasserstrom, welcome back. Always great to be here, John. Well, we've been obsessed with the Mideast for the last few weeks, but please remind us what's been going on with the protests in Hong Kong, which started, what, six months ago. What are they about? Bring us up to date. So it's been more than half a year, and these are the biggest sustained urban protests in the People's Republic of China anywhere since 1989. So this is a massive challenge um, to Beijing. It's the best way, I think, to think of the protests is there have been a series of moves during the last several years to try to tighten the controls on Hong Kong, to try to make Hong Kong more like the cities just over the mainland from it, in which there are all sorts of things that you can't do that you can do in Hong Kong, including um, criticize the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, Falun Gong can operate in Hong Kong. It can't operate anywhere else. Um, Beijing under Xi Jinping, who's more and more concerned with tightening controls, would like all of the country to be more in line with his vision. Um, Hong Kong and Macau, another former colony, were both supposed to have the ability to go their own way uh, for 50 years after becoming part of the People's Republic of China. They both became part of it in the late 90s. Xi Jinping has made it clear he thinks Macau has done this the right way. Macau is different economically. Uh, but in political terms, it's very similar to the places over the mainland. It's a little bit different. You can still do some things there that you can't do on the mainland cities. And Xi Jinping thinks it would be fine if Hong Kong could be sort of like that. But the Hong Kong people really want there to be more of a difference from there. And the specific trigger of this was calls for an extradition bill that would make it simpler for people that Beijing wanted to have tried for crimes over the border of the mainland to be sent from Hong Kong over the border. And that was just seen as the latest tightening of controls, um, and people, people fought back. And even though that specific bill has been um, withdrawn, which was one of the things that, the, that began with the protests, the protests very quickly became, like protests in many places, a, a protest for the right to protest itself and against police brutality. We know these kinds of things. So there are a lot of demands still, and the biggest, I think, the most galvanizing one for many is that there be an impartial uh, investigation of police brutality, and the Hong Kong government has shown absolutely no interest in giving into that one. 
You open your new book, Vigil, with a comparison between Hong Kong today and Berlin during the Cold War. Please explain. So um, the idea of Berlin, uh, West Berlin, and Hong Kong as being sort of parallel spaces during the Cold War is that both were these islands, and West Berliners used to talk about themselves as living on an island, and Hong Kong Island literally is an island, mm -hmm. uh, next to a communist mainland. And so w during the Cold War, if you went to West Berlin, you went through East Germany, and you arrived at this place where you could buy all sorts of things, where newspapers could say all sorts of things that couldn't be done just over the wall. In Hong Kong, similarly, uh, the diff to move from um, the mainland of China to Hong Kong was a similar thing. And I actually made that movement myself, which was one of the things that brought this to mind. In 1986-87, I spent the year in Shanghai and midway through the year went to Berlin. I uh, went to, sorry, went to Hong Kong <laughs> and thought, wow, this is so different. And then at the end of the year, went to Berlin and felt that way. So since... Um, 1989, Berlin, has the two parts have been melded together into one city. And what's happened essentially is West Berlin ways have flowed through East Berlin. What's happened with Hong Kong, once it became part of the People's Republic of China, there was hope that Hong Kong ways would flow into the mainland, and the mainland would get to have a somewhat freer press, would get to have a looser um, arrangement. And in some ways, some parts of the cities on the mainland became a bit more like Hong Kong. But in political terms, it's been much more like East Berlin taking over West Berlin. Hmm. The idea is that, uh, that Hong Kong is becoming subsumed by that Communist Party ways. I know you visited Hong Kong last June for the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre of 1989, and you took part in the yearly candlelit vigil there. Is that the vigil that's the title of your new book? So the title of the book, the, I always knew the vigil would be important in the book, and to be honest, I thought it would provide an endpoint. I thought going to that um, marking of the massacre near Tiananmen Square of 1989, which cannot be commemorated on the mainland, but can still be commemorated in Hong Kong, I thought I would attend that and say, how much longer can this kind of difference be maintained? Uh, I didn't see the protests coming, neither did others. Of course, there would be more protests, but the idea of something as giant as it was, and within um, the weeks following that vigil, there were one million and then close to two million people on the streets. These are massive um, protests. So the book was going to be called Hong Kong on the Brink without anything in front mm -hmm. of it. It turns out there's another book called Hong Kong on the Brink. <laughs> Hong Kong's been on the brink other times. There's a book about Hong Kong in 1967 called Hong Kong on the Brink. So um, the very smart editor I was working with at Columbia uh, Global Reports suggested, what do you think of an alternative title, Vigil? Hmm. And I did have the vigil as a part of the, the, um, the narrative, once the, even once the book became more about the protests. The vigil was one of the things that started the road toward this new round of protests. At the end of that June 4th candlelit moment, which was very moving, the speaker said, and turn out on Sunday. We really need to show people that this is still a city determined to stay different. So there was a way in which the vigil was crucial. But vigil also has a sense of remaining vigil, watching vigil, watching over somebody or some place you care about that's in danger. So that was a very nice sense of it, a double meaning of vigil. And then I was just in Hong Kong 
for a return visit in December after completing the book. And uh, while I was there, I got to witness a giant protest of uh, well over 100,000 people. So the protest months after it's, it's, uh, was still going on. But the last event that I saw in Hong Kong um, in December before I left was a gathering organized by high school students in which there was a moment of silence early on with bowed heads in honor of uh, a youth who had um, fallen to his death or fled to his death from tear gas off a parking garage and died, and also for others who had suffered, died, or just been injured during the movement. So in a way, the last thing that I saw in Hong Kong before the book came out hmm. was a vigil. Hmm. If you just tuned in, we're speaking with Jeff Wasserstrom. His new book is Vigil Hong Kong on the Brink. You did a great interview for The Nation with Ross Perlin. He pointed out that Hong Kong is a city of massive inequality, yet the protests seem to be very broadly based. Are there class politics in Hong Kong today? So class politics are important, and actually it looks like the next focus of the movement um, uh, people have been talking about in the, the protests that have taken place in January, that the next stage needs to be to put more attention on unions, activities, and things like that. Um, there have been, um, the, one of the ways to think about the class tensions is the anger of a lot of the protesters are about proxy leaders that are leaders of the Hong Kong government who are beholden to Beijing. And since Hong Kong was integrated into the PRC, the chief executive in Hong Kong has usually been somebody from the sort of tycoon class of very rich people in Hong Kong who are seen as doing Beijing's biddings to try to keep the economy ticking along while um, being ready to sacrifice political goals. Carrie Lam, the current leader of Hong Kong, is not from that tycoon group. She came out of the civil service, but is still overall it's seen that Beijing has worked out an arrangement with most of the richest people in Hong Kong to try to preserve this kind of status quo. So there's a way in which there's a shared animosity toward that group. But the other thing is, I think with a movement like this, um, sure, there are divisions within Hong Kong over many things, how, how long your roots are there, um, uh, class, all kinds of issues. But a key thing that keeps a social movement going of large scale is when people think that something bad is happening to somebody who they can imagine being in the place of. And the police have lashed out at so many people from so many different walks of life. Um, there's been large-scale use of tear gas, which has affected enormous numbers of bystanders, so that many people feel when it comes to issues like police uh, interference and being vulnerable to um, a police force that seems largely out of control, they feel that whatever their social class, uh, their economic class, they can feel a kinship with people saying, this should not go on. Well, we've gone for 12 minutes here without talking about Donald Trump. Uh, you might think Trump in this context would support his friend, the president of China. But on Thanksgiving weekend, when nobody was following the news, he quietly signed these two bills, one imposing harsh sanctions on Hong Kong officials found to have engaged in human rights abuses, and the other banning the sale of crowd-control munitions like tear gas and rubber bullets to the Hong Kong police. These both passed Congress by overwhelming majorities. What do you think about those, the sanctions and the, the ban on the sale of crowd-control munitions? 
So it's a really complicated issue. And there's been some good writing from people on the left about the complexity of uh, the Hong Kong situation. Um, there's been a tendency for the people to be to speak out who's spoken out earliest and strongest against um, the Chinese Communist Party often come from the right. People like Marco Rubio, who see in Hong Kong a parallel space to Cuba, and he's speaking to a particular constituency, a particular kind of concern. Um, the left can be often more confused about, about Hong Kong um, and other places in the, in, that the Communist Party controls. But there has been a sophisticated left response to this, too. And I'd encourage people to read uh, both The Nation and Dissent have run pieces that talk about why the left should be uh, in support of, of the protests. It, what confuses things, too, is when protesters do things like carry the British flag or more recently, the American flag. Mm -hmm. And this can be seen as a kind of um, neo-imperialism or nostalgia for colonialism, but it's really largely twisting the tail of the authorities. It's saying this is something that we know will, will, will annoy them. Um, I don't give Trump a pass on this uh, or, or on, on, on anything, but um, early in the protest, he, he said multiple times that he just hoped things could be worked out and he thought that Xi Jinping was a good person and that, that Hong Kong and, the, and Xi Jinping could work this out. He, he's often said things that are both criticizing China, but then praising the strongman leader in control of it. And it, it just doesn't do any good that way. And I think actually the concern that, that the largest issue to worry about is Xi Jinping's increasingly authoritarian direction that he's taking the Chinese Communist Party not just um, uh, shown in Hong Kong, but even more importantly in Xinjiang with the repression of the Uyghurs. So while I like to see these, these statements against those abuses, praising Xi Jinping while doing these other things um, pushes things in the wrong directions, gives a strong man um, more help. In some ways allows him to say, both play to nationalism at home by saying foreign countries are interfering with us, and also buttress his personality cult by saying, look how respected I am. Mm -hmm. So to what extent are these protests unique to Hong Kong, given its unique uh, history? To what extent do they indicate something about dissent in China? So uh, the biggest fear of Beijing when protests like these happen is that there will be um, sympathetic protests or protests inspired by this across the border on the mainland. And so the censors and others have worked double time to block information about what's going on so that people on the mainland can be, uh, be kept in the dark about it, and also spin stories. So there have been some nasty actions of violence by protesters, um, not nearly as much as there have been by the police, but those are shown on a kind of continuous loop within the mainland to mm -hmm. give the sense that these are riots that are out of control. And when somebody expresses any sympathy with what's going on in, the, uh, in Hong Kong on the mainland, people, the move against them is very, very fast and sharp. This was true in 2014 with the umbrella movement. It's been true now. On the whole, there haven't been. There just isn't enough space for protests. There are plenty of people who are discontented on the mainland. There have been labor, um, labor actions that will continue to be. But the Chinese Communist Party has managed to come up with a strategy for keeping a lid on sustained, ongoing, 
organized protests. They allow certain kinds of things for people to let off steam, but anything that seems that will have any degree of organization is clamped down on. So there is discontent, but there's no sign, at least yet, of the kind of enduring social movement, just because of how hard repression is and because there's a lot of playing to, and we'll recognize this, a kind of uh, nationalistic sentiment that can keep people from understanding what their uh, true interests might be. Last question. Do you worry about Hong Kong's future? I worry about Hong Kong's future a lot. Um, I've seen this kind of tightening of controls, and sometimes it can be quite subtle, and we can miss the signs of it outside of Hong Kong. We, and and there still are, there's always a glass half empty, glass half full. There are things you can do in Hong Kong still that you can't do on the mainland. But one Hong Kong writer who was, uh, I came across a translation by her in the China, uh, China Heritage, a wonderful online um, publication out of uh, New Zealand, and Kenny Leung, and she wrote about the idea of thinking about the frog in a pot of boiling water. The frog, as, as the temperature is turned up very gradually, the frog will think this isn't so bad and will eventually be boiled alive. If the temperature goes up dramatically, then the frog might try to leap out. And these moments of protest are, in part, the Hong Kong frog, she was saying, realizing that it's now or never in terms of, of pushing back because this is what's been going on. And it's been an amazing. The only thing I'd end with is Hong Kong is a surprising place. I was surprised by the size of the protest. Many other people were. Uh, people were surprised by earlier waves of protests because Hong Kong was supposed to be a place where people only cared about making money. Hong Kong has surprised people over and over again. I see all the signs being of this further tightening of controls and that that's in the end where things are heading. But I keep reminding myself that Hong Kong is a city of surprising uh, surprises and the people of Hong Kong have shown their ability to defy expectations over and over again. Jeff Wasserstrom, his new book is Vigil, Hong Kong on the Brink. Jeff, thanks so much for coming in today. This is great. Oh, it was a pleasure. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, Tom Lutz talks about his new novel, Born Slippy. That's in a minute on KPFK, when Trump Watch continues. <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, rising up with Sonali. But first, Tom Lutz. He's written many books. My favorite of his older books is Doing Nothing, A History of Loafers, Loungers, Slackers, and Bums in America. It won the National Book Award. Recently, he's published a couple of books on his travels to obscure places like Drinking Mare's Milk on the Roof of the World, Wandering the Globe from Azerbaijan to Zanzibar. We talked about it here. He's also editor-in-chief and publisher of the L.A. Review of Books, and somehow he's also distinguished professor and chair of creative writing at UC Riverside. Now he's written a novel. It's called Born Slippy. Tom Lutz, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. 
Well, the novelist Ivy Pakoda calls you the love child of Elmore Leonard and Graham Greene. Is this true? Yes. I, I don't know how she found that out. I've been trying to give it a secret, but yes. <laughs> what, uh, what exactly are the lines of influence here? I can see the uh, Elmore Leonard is, is in your uh, dialogue, especially your character, Dimitri, with his irresistible spieling. Um, uh, I know Graham Greene looms large in, in your life, too. Yeah, there's a, there. Uh, I think there are a lot of little references to the Third Man in in this book. Um, that like 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 the Third Man, born Slippy has a has a uh, very bad man and a and a guy that's trying to be a, a better man mm-hmm. um, at the center of it, and and the and the two of them trying to figure out what's up with each other. Well, the protagonist in Born Slippy is named Frank Baltimore. He sees on the first page, he sees on the news that a bank in Taipei has exploded. He says his friend Dimitri was the head of that office, and Frank feels guilty because he thinks he could have prevented it. But you write, that was ridiculous. Only Dimitri could have. Wow. Uh, tell us about Frank and about Dimitri. Well, Frank is, um, when we meet Frank and Dimitri, Frank is a 28-year-old kind of semi-loser who is um, a handyman slash contractor in western Massachusetts. He is building a house for a richer person in Connecticut, um, and it's his first kind of big job. And he hires Dimitri, who's the son of friends, the son of friends of friends of his, who's over from England to do a kind of tour of the U.S. before he starts his university career. So Dimitri's 18, Frank is 28, and they, um, for somewhat complicated reasons, live in a tent on the building site, um, basically to save money. But they're living in a tent in the, on the building site, and we watch a, a, a relationship sprout between them. Dimitri is already uh, a problem. Uh, it becomes clear over time. Uh, already uh, has some sociopathic tendencies and um, leaves Frank's life in a bit of a shambles when he when he leaves to go back to England. By the time um, uh, a, a year or two later, he stops in, looks up Frank. A uh, couple of years after that, he comes in again. Every time he comes through the states for one reason or another, he looks up Frank and uh, and they continue to have this kind of on again, off again relationship. Frank thinks in part because. He is um, uh, Dimitri's offshored conscience, mm. and uh, or that, at least that's what Frank likes to think. For- um, and then um, it uh, things go from um, <laughs> bad to not so good to worse. <laughs> and Frank, at one point, wonders. Frank wonders, and and I guess we do too, why we love stories about dashing bad guys. Frank lists Butch Cassidy, Jay Gatsby, Tom Ripley, and also Becky Sharp. This is the only list I've ever seen that includes Butch Cassidy and Becky Sharp together. Um, <laughs> Dimitri is another person on this list. Why do we love these stories? I, I think we we love them for a number of reasons. One is... Uh, you know, whether it's um, Tony Soprano or, or Walter White, um, we love the idea that we might be able to do whatever we want, <laughs> anytime we want, 
um, the, the law and family and friends and decency uh, aside, we just can, could do whatever we want. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a fantasy of, of total freedom. Of course, in the book, not everybody loves Dimitri. Uh, you have a journalist named Patricia, a drama critic at the Wall Street Journal who's hired away by the L.A. Times. She describes Dimitri as, quote, a truly terrifying swine, close quote. Isn't she right? Yes, she is. She is completely right. That's one of the reasons she shows up in the novel in order to, to, to in case anybody missed it, <laughs> to let us know that yes, uh, even if you may be enjoying him, uh, um, you know most most people. I, I read it out loud at the Strand in New York City on Tuesday night, and um, it was very uncomfortable to read the way Dimitri talks in a in a room of of uh, smart adult people. (laughs) It's because he is, uh, he says everything that uh, we're not allowed to say. Um, And which most of us don't even think to say or wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't think to say. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a certain kind of pleasure, but I, I'm realizing as I start doing these readings that it's a pleasure that might be best consumed in private. <laughs> uh, if you're just tuned in, we're speaking with Tom Lutz about his new novel, Born Slippy. Tom will be reading uh, and signing Born Slippy tonight at Skylight Books. This is Thursday night in Los Angeles, 1818 North Vermont at 730. Uh Dimitri becomes a banker in Asia who seems to know a great deal about buying and selling things that we're not too sure about. You seem to know a lot about the darker machinations of international capitalism. One reviewer wrote that the book was, quote, a version of the Panama Papers as redacted by Patricia Highsmith. The, the transit of money in one direction and guilt in the other. I thought that was pretty great. Was it your experience publishing the L.A. Review of Books that gave you this knowledge of the dark side of international capitalism? Yes, there's no kind of uh, higher finance than that, which fuels the Los <laughs> Review Books. No, I, um, I, uh, I think that we all... Um, as much as we're fascinated by sociopaths, we're really fascinated by some of these sociopaths who are ruining the the uh, planet yeah. um, out of uh, out of uh, what seems to be avarice at times and seems to just be some kind of bizarre gamesmanship at others. Um, and so uh, I've been I've I've been following uh, the kind of financialization of the world um, uh, as as one as one does if one's paying attention these days. Um, and so I, I don't I, I don't have any training in, in finance. I don't have any any um, background in uh, in banking. Um, but it, but you know I've read I've read my books. Uh, I've, I've looked at I've, I've done my research and I've sent it past a few people um, who know such things to make sure that I wasn't getting anything wrong. And Born Slippy is also a noir thriller. That part of the plot hinges 
or begins with Dimitri asking Frank to borrow his passport to open a bank account in his name. We are shouting at Frank, don't do it. <laughs> uh, Frank, Frank is, in fact, shouting at himself, don't do it. And then he goes ahead and does it. So, uh, so even at this early point in the book, Frank knows Dimitri is involved in something shady. Why does he do it? Um, well, that's, uh, that is, um, I think, one of the, one of the things that um, I liked about the, the review, the Howard Rodman's review in, uh, in, in LARB, uh, what I think I liked about it was that he, he, was, he really saw that um, what I was trying to do was talk about the complicity of the people who feel that they are resisting um, uh, the, the, the complicity that we, that we end up having the choices that we make that are not choices to do anything horrible per se, but which are fueled in part by the desire to be a little better off, <laughs> the desire to, to uh, have some of the things that we see other people having. Um, you know, I, I've always loved the Rene Girard idea that, that, that uh, human beings are apes. We mimic each other. Um, and all of that works out fine until we start imitating each other's desires. And, uh, and there's a way in which this world, of, the world of capital, runs on the imitation of desire. And then there are the women in Born Slippy. There's the firecracker, as you call her, the journalist at the L.A. Times who does not fall for Frank. And then there's the, uh, the Asian femme fatale who, who uh, in the end does. Uh, she's trapped in a cage. Tell us about Yuli, exquisite Yuli. Well, Yuli, um, I mean, this is the, the Girardian imitation of desire at work, I think. <laughs> Yuli is um, Dimitri's wife. And um, Frank has a fantasy of rescuing her from this the life of this with this horrid misogynist and without a slight smidgen of understanding that 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 fantasy is itself a patriarchal fantasy mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. and without uh any seeming any thought that she might not want to get rescued at all and i don't want to give away too much um of how things work out but um, let's just say that Frank Frank is um, is at his most confused uh, in his relationship. <laughs> okay, we'll leave it there. Frank um, Frank didn't go to college, but Frank is a reader, and uh, yes. early in the book he tells Dimitri a, about a story by Nathaniel Hawthorne called Wakefield, which I didn't know anything about, but it's made a big impression on. Frank, and it's really very illuminating about Frank. Tell us about Hawthorne's Wakefield. Uh, you know, a funny thing happened to me as I was writing that um, that part of the book because I had read Wakefield uh, back when I was doing my comps exams. You know, back I was reading all my Hawthorne for, for a degree in American literature, and um, and it made a big impression on me um, as a kind of a kind of story of alienation seen from the inside rather from the outside than from the outside and um, I remembered the story wrong hmm. um, so the the version that um, that uh, 
that uh, Frank tells Dimitri is um, was was more wrong than it is now. Um, when I when when he first told it to me, then I went back and read it again, and I I made it a little bit closer to the actual story, but I, I made it significantly different than the story itself as well in a couple places. Just um, you know, for people who know Wakefield, they'll notice that that Frank is not quite as good a reader as he thinks he is. Um, and he also, Frank, Frank recognizes as he's talking about it that Wakefield is written around the time that Marx writes the Communist Manifesto. He thinks this is a, a fascinating non-coincidence since they're both talking about yeah. alienation. Um, but he, um, Dimitri, is um, unmoved by this in, in, <laughs> intellectual coincidence. Frank, Frank describes it as a, well, it's about a, a man who observes his own uh, life uh, from the outside uh, and and finds it to be melancholy yeah he 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 uh, is a, is a guy that has to go to um, to the next town uh, on business uh, it requires an, an overnight stagecoach ride to get there this is in the 1840s and uh, or 1830s maybe even that the story set and he um, one day as usual his wife packs his kit bag and he uh, instead of going to the stage and going on to his job, he just goes across town and rents an apartment on the other side of his of his hometown and kind of hides in the bushes and watches his wife distressingly looking after the stage, waiting for him to come home, uh, weeping with friends, uh, finally putting on widow's weeds and, and mourning his loss, getting remarried, having the children grow up and move away and... Um, and I, I don't know. It's, it just struck me that there's there's something about the way in which we're we can at times in our lives sit and 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 wait for the real life to happen as if we're as if we're not in the middle of it already. Um, that that rang true about that story, and it's kind of stuck with me ever since. And for Frank, of course, it is he is um, he's kind of in part, forever waiting for the, the real life to start. Last question. What does the title mean, Born Slippy? Born Slippy is a was a big dance hit in the 90s, um, and it was uh, by a band called Underground or a, a group called Underground. I don't know if you call them a band. It's a dance, elect, elect, electronic dance tune. Um, it was the suggestion of my British editor, Tarek Goodard, who is uh who who hated the original title which <laughs> was sugarfish which is <laughs> as you know a restaurant in Los Angeles yes we're cheering in master control over the thought of sugarfish <laughs> and i i loved the title sugarfish he hated it and a lot of other people didn't like it either they and it and, and it really is in both cases it's just a it's a, a bit of a red herring it's just a, a password for an account um, that gets passed between people, but once once um, once Tarek uh, suggested it to me, I thought I thought oh, you know what uh, I I think so. It was it was made uh, famous in uh, as part of the soundtrack of Train Spotting. Train Spotting, that's where we've heard it. Yeah, and um, and the and the lyrics. I mean, they're not exactly lyrics, as nobody actually quite sings in it. But the 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 words. Um, are have a lot of kind of homoerotic um, 
moments and uh, just kind of um, uh, free, free, free-flowing, uh, non-objective sexuality running through it. So it just it 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 made it made sense when I once I read it, once I looked at the, listened to the song again with the book in mind, and I salted some lyrics from it through the course of the book. As a result. Tom Lutz, he'll be reading from and signing his wonderful new novel, Born Slippy. Tonight in L.A. at Skylight Books, this is Thursday at 1818 North Vermont. It's my favorite novel of the year, I would say. Tom Lutz, thanks for talking with us today and have fun tonight. All right. Thanks so much, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests. Harold Meyerson had our political update. Jeff Wasserstrom talked about the protests in Hong Kong. His new book is Vigil Hong Kong on the Brink. Thanks to our engineer, Teddy Robinson. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, Rising Up with Sonali. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on this same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Mm